0: Welcome to the CRE podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawlik.
1: Welcome to the commercial real estate podcast powered by First National. As always, I'm Aaron Cameron. With me is Adam Pawlik. We've got a really great topic today and I'm going to throw it out there if we just realized it. We've got our first doctor as a guest. You know, We like to celebrate different things on the podcast. We're almost at 300 episodes. It took us 200 and something to get to the first doctor, but we finally did it. Our topic today is really about well, it's about a lot of things. There's things that I probably don't necessarily understand as well as I should, but it's about the use of technology and the way in which real estate users and operators need to focus more on the well being of their tenants and their occupiers. So, our guest today, a gentleman named Matthew Trowbridge, MD, MPH, Chief Medical Officer at the International Well Building Institute and the Associate Professor. University of Virginia School of Medicine. And our other guest is Melissa Jacobs, who's the Senior Director of ESG, which is Environment, Social, and Governance at First Capital REIT. Melissa and Matt, thanks for joining us today. Thanks
0: so much.
2: Thanks for having us.
1: First, a reminder to our guests, stay tuned at the end of the podcast where Adam and I will try to digest the conversation, but I suspect just based on our pre-call that Most of what we're about to talk about is going to go above Adam in my head, but that's okay. That's not for us. It's for our listeners. We're going to go backwards first, as we always do, just kind of figure out who these individuals are and how they ended up where they are today. So Melissa, let's start with you. Maybe just talk about how you ended up at First Capital, why real estate, why ESG? Like what brought you here today?
2: I grew up in Thunder Bay, Ontario, Northwestern Ontario. So I've always had that exposure to nature, to wildlife, and I've always had an appreciation of it. So somewhere along the way, as I was trying to think about what I was going to do when I went to university, the environmental studies program caught my attention. As with most kids, I think entering university, I really had no idea what I wanted to do. Back in 2002, this was really before corporate sustainability or ESG was even a thing. So I had no clue where I'd go with an environmental studies degree. I actually remember my dad asking me if I was going to be a hippie. And then Uh. partway through my undergrad at Lakehead, I actually transferred to York University in Toronto to finish off. And after my first year, there I landed my first summer job with the Toronto Region Conservation Authority and their Sustainable Development Group. And that's kind of really when I started to like formulate a little bit more of a plan in terms of, hey, this is something really interesting, really cool. It was a small department, but exposed me to some really cool projects kind of in the realm of green building. So when I graduated from York, I was lucky enough to be hired full-time by then and was actually seconded to the World Green Building Council and spent a couple of years there, kind of growing my appreciation for the impact that the built environment has on our planet and the flip side of that, what we can do to reduce that impact. Following the World GBC, I moved into the corporate world. I spent some time at Sears Canada in a sustainability role. And then went off on mat leave and again was thinking like, where am I really going to be happy and put my skill set to use? And the commercial real estate industry seemed like a no-brainer for me, kind of combining my interests in green building and corporate sustainability. And after my maternity leave, I joined the team at Bentall Kennedy. It was Bentall Kennedy at the time, now Bentall Greenout. Joined their sustainability team and really enjoyed kind of working. The dynamic of working in commercial real estate in a sustainability role, I really kind of saw the opportunity to make significant impact. It felt real. There's a good amount of collaboration in the industry, really feels as if everybody's working together towards a common goal. So after a few years at Bentall, actually on my second mat leave, seems I like to jump around a little bit when I take some time off. I accepted a position at First Capital, where I am now to lead their sustainability an ESG program. Anybody who's not familiar, First Capital, leading owner, operator, and developer of mixed-use real estate in Canada, largely focused in Canada's most densely populated cities. So I'm now in my fourth year in this role at First Capital, been continuing to build on their long history of sustainability leadership that kicked off back in 2006. And really, we've made some great advancements, you know, some you'll hear about today in our ESG programs, kind of looking forward, we recently built out a five-year strategic roadmap as well. So lots of big plans. I think I'll leave it there and hand it over to Matt for his intro.
3: Before we jump over, Melissa, but one quick question. What strikes me hearing about your very linear progression in your career is how your expanding job options must have appeared over time, like the last four years of specializing in green building or ESG related focus must have been a lot more interesting and available to you than when you started. I mean, when you graduated, or maybe I was a troglodyte at the time and I was unaware of the options available for focusing on green building and wellness, but it's amazing that your career path had that straight jump into what is now such a large part of real estate.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. Like in a way, I kind of feel like I got lucky landing where I did because I really was kind of like, I don't know what I'm going to do but landed in a role that I really, really enjoyed and did have like a really great trajectory into where I am now. I joke sometimes with my colleagues or family, I was kind of always that random sustainability person sitting in the corner. Nobody knew what I did. I was just there. And like you said, the growth of it now is just, I've been working for a good 15 years. It's great. And a lot of opportunity now for others looking to get into the space as well.
1: Well, I'd maybe, and we'll go to Matt next. And Matt, maybe you know the answer to this question. So it's a good segue, but I always forget it. I should probably remember this, but commercial real estate, real estate in general is the largest contributor of greenhouse emissions out of every sector in the world. Is that true? You know the number off the top of your head. I know that it's an incredibly astonishing number. That, I, do, I think that's Melissa. why we're all, <laughs> do you know the number, Melissa? I can't remember I, what it is, but it's something like I 60 do, or yeah.
2: 70%. It's 30 to 40% globally for greenhouse gas emissions from building. When you're looking at an urban center like a city, it can get upwards more towards like 40, 50%. But it is very significant.
1: That's one of the main drivers why this is getting so much attention. and is really just changing the way that we all view real estate. Let's save that conversation for later. Matt, let's do your background first. The doctor, the first doctor we've had on this podcast. Thanks for taking the time to come on, Matt. We really appreciate it.
0: No, absolutely. It's totally a pleasure. So how did a doctor get to be involved in real estate? get to be on this podcast, that's actually a question I get a lot. I think it's a valid one. My response that I always have is why the built environment? And I always answer the data actually brought me here. The reality is that over the last few decades, public health has determined kind of as a field that the most important things we need to be focused on are actually the social and environmental determinants of health is what they're called. Essentially, with all the research that has been done over the last few decades has shown that only about 20% of health outcomes are actually determined by the variance in the quality of medical care. And that actually 80% of health outcomes at a population scale are caused by everything else. So basically where you live really matters. For example, we're finding that just the choices you have in your daily environment about, we tell you to eat healthy. Well, if you don't have access to healthy foods, that's a more difficult behavior to have as part of your daily life. We ask you to be physically active. It's really hard to do that if you don't have a safe and enjoyable place to walk every day. So that was really the impetus that caused not just me, but all of public health to really get excited about the built environment. My personal entree into this, I love the way Melissa kind of set us up there talking about her background. I think mine's relevant too. I grew up in a very public health oriented family. My father was a physician and he is a physician, but he worked at the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta. So, I was privileged to grow up with literally the people who eradicated smallpox. And so, no pressure there. (laughs) But it did put in my mind that if you grow up in that kind of environment, being a physician was really to take on global public health issues. So, that was really what I wanted to do with my career. And as I came out of medical school and public health school with epidemiology training, in addition to my clinical training, I really wanted to jump into that. And I was fortunate to kind of be involved in this kind of early stage conversation that was started by a series of physicians at the Centers for Disease Control and Emory University, Georgia Tech, kind of they were the first to call out in the early 2000s, that there was a link between the built environment and health. And so I got to participate in kind of that early stage research, just establishing and answering a basic question, is there a link between the built environment and health? For me, though, what happened was about a couple of years in, I kind of felt, we had all gotten to the point where the answer was quite clear. The answer was yes, it's really important. So then to me, it was given that action-oriented childhood I had, I was like, well, what do we do about it? You know, How do we change the built environment at scale? If we decided the built environment is important, how do we make a big difference? And I quickly realized that public health was not going to do it through its normal mechanisms of change. So for about the last five or so years, as an academic, my work has really started to focus on that idea, like how might we make consideration of health and well-being in the real estate industry kind of normative. And where I got to with that was studying who else has brought about a true at-scale change in considerations and practice in the real estate industry. And I concluded sustainability in the green building movement. And so for the last five years or so, I've been running a series of grants with, in partnership with the U.S. Green Building Council thinking about that exact issue and studying the green building movement and asking how might we take the market transformation strategies that worked for green building and now bring them to health promotion. And we'll get into it in our conversation, but that has taken me on a pretty exciting journey. I've been involved with creating new lead credits that are explicitly focused on health promotion. And one of the things I'm most proud of is I led a three-year engagement with GRES. Developing the health and well being module that I'm sure a lot of people in the audience are familiar with.
3: It sounds like an exciting journey, but also a little unusual. You know, if you were a cardiologist, you'd have cardiologist colleagues and you could go to conferences and a very established network. I got to ask, for lack of a better word, how deep is the real estate doctor network and how big is your peer group when you're looking at something that's really interesting, unique to your studies? How many people can you call who really understand what you're doing? Fortunately, there's really
0: a growing number of us that the Evidence for the importance of the built environment as a health determinant is so strong and is growing so deep that pretty much every large public health institution is focused on the built environment. Because while there are lots of social and environmental determinants of health, there are a more limited set that are actually changeable, mutable, and built environment, therefore, really comes to the forefront. So I really want to emphasize if you remember nothing else from me, is that everyone listening to this podcast has to understand that as a person, who makes places you really are a health professional and we really really need your help but Adam answering your question directly i do have this dichotomous experience in life where my clinical colleagues here i do the built environment and they're like wow that is really niche and then as soon as of course i get onto this podcast everyone who works in the built environment understands that i am definitely a generalist you know working at a very broad scale about the built environment whereas obviously the specialties that you need to be impactful in real estate are varied I actually have found it's really important to think about how to make public health evidence actionable in each type of kind of sector and at each kind of moment in the kind of value chain of making places.
1: We should have probably mentioned this at the top, but this is the second of a series where we recently interviewed Paul Shala, who was the founder of Delos, but also the founder of the International Well-Building Institute. And he had this sort of concept or you know, the way that he would just kind of phrase it as he was kind of talking the way that his mind works is that if it's got four walls and a roof, the reality is the quality of that air internally is not as good as you might think it is. And so he's kind of been on a mission throughout his entire career is to advocate for better air quality and the well-being of those occupiers. And I think Matt grew up on Wall Street or spent a lot of time on Wall Street. You've come at it from a totally different angle, but ultimately with very similar objectives. So let's start with just where we've come as a community, as a commercial real estate community. There was very little focus on this 15, 20 years ago. At one point, I think we talked about in a previous episode, just you know, when we stopped smoking indoors, we all thought that was a real big win, right? Not realizing, yes, that was a real big win, but there was a way more to do as far as it relates to just quality of being inside for the majority of your life and the air quality that's in there and all the other things that go with it as you're going to describe. You started with Grez and maybe just talk about your experience, how you got into GRAS, and then we're going to talk about IWI versus GRAS, because IWBI is kind of the next stage of the next evolution. And I like the way that you described it. You were the intellectual author of the health and wellness module of you Let me just talk through that, and then let's get into just the comparisons and the distinctions between the two.
0: Sure. And right off the bat, this was definitely a collaboration between myself, but you know, it was a public health team. I was the principal investigator for the grant, but my colleagues, Kelly Warden and Chris Pike from U.S. Green Building Council were my longtime research partners on this. And then obviously, it was a collaboration with GRES. But yes, there was a really exciting opportunity with the module to try to something different for GRES. This was the first time we offered the module was in 2016, and it was a very new experiment for GRES, where they were essentially first time that they were trying to prompt the market to do something they hadn't necessarily been explicitly asked to do. So what we took on in the health and well-being module was an opinion that over time, part of what will define a high-performance company will be not just its management of traditional, I would say, sustainability practices, but then also being able to manage human and social capital as well. We had the opportunity to run the module as a kind of a sidecar assessment. It was a voluntary module that companies could participate in. And they also was up to the companies of whether they wanted to share the results with their institutional investors. But what was really exciting is it was much more successful than even we expected. (laughs) It ran for three years. Over the course of running this voluntary module, close to 400 companies participated in the module at least once. And actually, in its final year of 2018, there were close to 300 companies participating. So that I mean, it was close to, if I remember correctly, around 30% of the GRES participants elected to do the health and well-being module. I think that alone, and remember, this was happening a few years ago, You know, not during COVID, this was two, three years ago. There was already a strong sense that I think companies found that health and well-being story was compelling to their investors and that it made meaningful change and created a new kind of opportunity for differentiation. One of the things I'm really proud of is that we heard a lot of anecdotal stories about how being forced to think about Questions like, do you have someone in your organization explicitly in charge of health and well-being concerns, both internally for your own employees and tenants, and then externally for the communities in which your assets reside? Just being asked those questions really prompted some interesting conversations, both internal to the organization and also, I think, helped companies reframe stories
3: that they could tell about their efforts. It really was something we're really proud of. See, so Melissa, if you can talk about Matt saying companies are asking the question of who do we have to represent mm-hmm. us, and that would, of course be, be your role. So let's talk about the intersection, what Matt's doing, and of course how you interact with, you know, IWBI, specifically the first cat portfolio.
2: Sure, yeah. It's interesting. Health and wellness going beyond what we would typically think of as a traditional sustainability topic. I think even before the GRES module, like I remember probably back around 2014. We started to hear and see it as an emerging topic. I remember working on like a tenant engagement program while I was at Bentall. And we were trying to get creative about how we could encourage our tenants to engage in health and wellness, thinking through things like active transportation and encouraging them to get up and take walk breaks, those types of like easy actions. And the idea that we can have a positive impact on the health and well-being of the people who either work in the building or who visit our neighborhoods, come to our buildings, started to become more commonplace. And I think just naturally fell under the sustainability umbrella. So we started to think about how we could integrate these concepts into our programs. I don't remember the exact year, but probably also around the same time, we started to hear more about the well-building standard from IWBI as well. And there was a lot of interest Going to Greenbuild and hearing them talk about this new health and wellness standard was really cool. And then with the health and well-being module in Gres, from like a sustainability practitioner standpoint, I think it just gave it even more prominence. You know, a lot of people listening probably familiar with Grez in some capacity. The benchmark does carry a lot of clout in the real estate community and with investors. I know a lot of companies use it almost like a roadmap to ensure that their ESG programs are on track, that they're continuing to evolve every year. So when Gresb came out with this like, whole dedicated, although voluntary, it was still a dedicated module, dedicated to health and well-being, I think a lot of people were like, oh, we better take this seriously. We need to get our, our ducks in a row here and figure it out.
1: Well, maybe um, that's a good segue, Alyssa, because I mean, just to pull the Gresb and IWBI, the well-building standards are supportive of each other. Like it's not one or the other. Yeah. And maybe just talk through then. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's sort of an evolution, right? Res was this module that, of course, Matt was integral and deforming. And IWBI is for the well-building standards as part of the IWBIs. Is that sort of the next step? Is it a little bit deeper as far as just for landlords and owners and operators of business of buildings to kind of dive in even deeper into their ESG strategy?
2: Yeah, I think it can be, the standard can be a logical next step. I think what the GRES module tries to do is like address, at the time, kind of address the lack of systemic assessments and processes around tracking health and well-being and how our companies going to start implementing and developing an approach to implementing a health and well-being program. I think the programs, the well-building standard or the well-health safety rating that IWBI provides is kind of a solution to address that and out of the box. Great guidance in terms of this is what you should be doing. Go out and do it. And then you have that validation that comes along with the program and the backing of that program.
1: We're going to spend zero time on this, but I just feel it important to reference that the value of this is not just that, you know, you're supporting sort of obviously the next steps in an environmental, social and governance, and ESG and your, the well-being, health and well-being, but this is in demand. That was one of the things that really came out when I was talking to Paul, the founder of IDBI at Delos, that the growth and the attention this is getting from investors all over the world. The number of adoptions on a daily mm-hmm. basis right now of these types of approaches to ensuring the health and well being of their occupiers is just it's incredible, the amount of adoption. Maybe Matt, just talk about what's going into without too much detail, but at least just kind of let's educate us a little bit on well health safety ratings, the well building standards. Like, what are the kind of things that our owner operators of real estate are kind of looking to do?
0: Yeah, as you mentioned, International Well-Building Institute is growing exponentially right now. And quite honestly, that's why it's so exciting for me to have joined as Chief Medical Officer in March of this year. IWI started several years ago, and its kind of cornerstone offering is the Well-Building Standard, which is the leading tool for advancing health and wellness in building and communities globally. And it's organized around 10 concepts I think what's unusual about it, if you haven't engaged with it, is that it goes well beyond kind of things like just standard safety issues or very traditional health metrics. It's extremely holistic. And it's by This isn't just like,
1: how new is your HVAC, right? It's not just... That's right. When was Which the last those, time you unless, cleaned let your And Let me be very
0: ducts. clear. Yeah, those things are really important. I never want to minimize those things. But to your point, yes, this tries to push you further to think about truly a holistic idea of health, well-being, issues like equity. The well-building standard really has been designed to be not just a rating system, but really honestly, a strategic plan for how to address health and well-being, not just in your single asset, but across your organization. And to your point, as I said, I'm a physician. I wake up every day. My primary mandate is to try to help as many people as I can over the course of my career. And to me, joining IWI was a no-brainer because of the moment it's experiencing and its growth. As you said, it's now being used in over close to 100 countries. We have over 17,000 well APs certified. It are kind of practitioners specifically trained to deal with well, and so on and so forth. It's growing super fast. So it is exciting. We think we're kind of at a tipping point for health and well-being in the global market.
3: Well, on that theme then... We're at a tipping point, obviously, it means there's room for improvement. How would you rate the overall real estate industry for embracing, adopting, implementing what you'd want to see for buildings? I think the really new thing is that idea
0: of thinking about health, well-being, opportunities around human and social capital as broadly as I believe they should be. As I said, my core programming is as a public health professional. I do think about individual health. Of course, I'm a physician. And I do care a lot about these things like indoor environments and so forth. But when you look at the global issues of our day from a health perspective, the biggest issues of our time are things like chronic disease, you know, really large issues, childhood obesity, or social issues like isolation and so forth. And the built environment plays a huge role in that. So my goal and the goal of IWI is nothing less than to create A scenario, a set of market conditions where doing the right thing to create amazing, inclusive, just, beautiful, healthy places, not just for the people inside of buildings, but for the neighborhoods around them. We just want to make it not just the right thing to do, but just be the right thing to do for your business. And I think that's where this is going to be not just IWI, but a global movement that we want to be at the center of. And we think we can. Play a big role in, but it really is going to require, just like in green building, where we're going to finally really make an impact is when investors understand that they have the ability and the right to ask, where is their capital going, not just for pure sustainability goals, but for human and social capital goals as well. You hear it across, whether it's Larry Fink talking about, hey, we're going to be looking for purpose driven companies over the short and longer term. I just feel very comfortable recommending that businesses really get serious about how they're telling their story about people, social issues, not just purely environmental issues.
1: Maybe that's a good segue back to Melissa, just about the merger of health and well-being and just community building and Mm -hmm. how it actually gets implemented. It's one thing to sit here and talk about how this is a great thing and we should be doing it. But the execution side of it is a whole other component which really I think falls to you right Melissa so Absolutely. let me just talk about what first capital is doing and how you truly take this philosophical perspective and turn it into reality.
2: You mentioned kind of the community building piece, you know, first capital really being purpose driven in that our purpose being to create thriving urban neighborhoods. And I think health and well-being we're recognizing is a really important part of that. Healthy communities obviously contribute to thriving communities. So in practice, and especially something we had already begun thinking about, but especially in response to the COVID nineteen pandemic, our priority it was very much on putting the health and safety of people first, whether that was our employees that we're talking about, or our tenants, our customers, the larger community. So, in a proactive response to trying to make our properties as safe and healthy as possible to make people feel safe to kind of re-enter our properties, we actually implemented the well health safety rating. Matt was kind of talking about the well building standard. Jump in here, Matt, if I'm getting this wrong, but the well health safety rating is kind of a subset or an offshoot of the well building standard that focuses more on facility operations and management. He can probably speak to a little bit more in terms of the background and how that standard came to be. But we saw it as a way to be proactive in our response to ensuring that our properties were safe and healthy. So in June this past year, we achieved the first well health safety rating amongst Canada's retail REITs. The rating was granted to 35 of our buildings across Canada, shopping centers, mixed use properties, and we also have several office spaces that were certified. And really what it is, is a reflection of our implementation of Operational strategies and protocols to support and advance a healthy and safe environment in our public indoor spaces. It was talking about like the practical side of things, the implementation side of things. It truly was a team effort, definitely did not just fall to me. It was a team effort across our operations team. We came together early in 2021. This really does make a lot of sense in terms of validating that all the hard work that we had already put in motion in response to the pandemic was in place. We were doing the right thing. We uncovered some things that we could be doing better and updated those to achieve the rating and really kind of implemented quite quickly a number of new protocols and made updates to existing policies, which kind of speaks to the strong foundation that we already had in place. So talking practically some of the things that we did, as I'd mentioned, very focused on operational policies, maintenance protocols, ensuring that there are enhanced strategies in place to keep building spaces clean and sanitized, ensuring that we have the proper essential health benefits and services in place for our own employees to make sure that they're not coming to work sick and those types of things, that we're communicating these health and safety efforts to our tenants and to anybody who's visiting the building, that we're engaging occupants in emergency preparedness, and then also a process to assess ongoing the air and water quality and the buildings as well and Matt I don't know if you want to maybe give a little bit of color we talked about the well building standard but specifically about the well health safety rating and kind of how it came to be
0: Sure yeah well the health safety rating really is a unique product for us and really it did set us off on this trajectory that we're on it's the first rating system that we explicitly designed to be implemented at more of that portfolio scale it was generated in direct response to demand from Fortune 500 companies. As the pandemic began, there was a realization that companies needed to have a clear signal to their employees and to their customers that they were taking deliberate evidence-based steps to do everything possible to make their buildings as safe as possible at a combination of policy levels and everything you can think of. And so the health safety rating was launched very quickly. And what's really exciting for us is, you heard it in the way Melissa was saying, is that it's a very new opportunity for us to kind of engage directly more at kind of a C-suite level with groups rather than just one project, but to really be thinking with companies and investors, like, what should we be doing as an organization, not just one asset at a time? And again, that's why it's a no-brainer for me to join at this moment in IWI's history because, as I mentioned, in the way I introduced myself. My brain really lights up when we have the opportunity to take on like really big public health issues, and I think this is just the beginning.
3: So both of you are clearly early adopters in this field of study, whether that's you with your medical degree, the Melissa with First Capital, obviously at the very forefront of this. We'll start with Melissa. What would you say to late adopters of this, late embracers, people that uh, now maybe realize that they got to get going on this but don't have a solid strategy and plan? What's the low-hanging fruit? What's the business case for this? What can they get going to remove some of the inertia this classic in real estate that doesn't want to change too fast for any reason?
2: Yeah, well, I think the beauty of like some of these programs that we've seen emerge and there's the well-health rating system. We've seen a couple of programs emerge directly in response to COVID-19. It's obviously shone a spotlight on the urgent need for proper health and wellness programs to put in place, but I think choosing the program that appears to be the right fit for your asset makes or asset types, whatever it might be. They really do provide guidance, whether you go through with certification or not, provide that good guidance in terms of here's a plan. These are the areas that you should be looking at. And this is what you should be executing on. You don't have to start it from scratch and come up with a program on your own. There's a lot out there. The research has been done. Like obviously IWBI has Matt, and I'm sure many, many others behind the scenes ensuring that this is top of the line, ready to go. So that would be my advice.
0: I also feel that 2022 is going to be a year where having a story to tell about health, well being, equity, it's going to go from a nice to have to a requirement. The things that we're monitoring closely are things like what is expected to be regulation from the SEC here in the United States around things like human and social capital disclosures. We also have things like in the EU, European Union, things like the social taxonomy that's in draft form to go along with the environmental taxonomy. Obviously in Asian markets, disclosure on ESG, that's already been in place for several years now. And you're starting to see groups in Asia starting to write in things like well into their use of proceeds for green bonds. I think this is a, to your point, Adam, about as I've studied the green building movement, there are predictable stages of market development, and everybody plays a role. I think we're at an early stage in the health and well-being market development, so it still feels like kind of an exciting new thing. I honestly do really recommend, though, given things like COVID, which is not causing this movement, as I said, but it has catalyzed it and pulled this trend forward. I think that the speed at which, whether it's your institutional investors or the general public are going to demand to know what your company's purpose is, how you are taking action on these social issues. I don't think it's going to take as long for that to become something that is demanded of companies more than just a nice-to-have.
1: I'll say First National is moving offices to 16 York, a building recently developed by Cadillac Fairview, and it is well-certified, and we're very excited for that. Now, I think there are leaders just like First Capital is, but I think there will be a lot more people seeing that well-certification emblem or logo on the building entrance to where they work, or hopefully in apartments and condos all over the world sooner rather than later. We're almost out of time, guys. So why don't we, and the last line of discussion is really around where are we going now, right? We kind of talked about current state and clearly there's a lot of growth still, but it's not just what you guys have talked about or not just what the modules or the standards have today. There's got to be new layers. I'm sure Matt you lie awake at night thinking about what are the next steps Melissa, we'll go to you first. Like, What is it that you're thinking about? Part of the challenge with real estate, we all know this, is that you don't just think about it and then build it and three months later, it's out of the ground, right? It takes mm-hmm. 10 years. So what you're thinking about today is ultimately what's going to be delivered to your occupiers in 10 years. So you kind of have to be a futurist to a certain degree. What is it that you're thinking about to try to get into your development plans so that when your communities are built, they have the sort of the current thinking in place?
2: Yeah, so I think... Traditionally thought of as an environmental issue, but I do think it's a huge health, safety and well-being issue as well as the issue of climate change, obviously. So when thinking about our standing assets, when thinking about our new developments, really kind of tackling the resilience aspect there and ensuring that we can respond to a change in climate in a way that will keep our tenants and our community members safer and allow our assets to kind of rebound more quickly as well in the face of any of these events. As we deal with a crisis such as COVID-19, it's tempting to take our eye off of some of the environmental challenges as well. I think we need to tackle them in tandem. And I think if anything, what COVID-19 has showed us is that we can respond quickly to a crisis. Industry collaboration is achievable. So looking ahead, we really have an opportunity to kind of redefine, kind of talking big picture here, but our planet's future by setting more ambitious sustainability goals and shortening the time frame in which we can deliver on them just like we all kind of had to rally together and figure out how to deal with this global pandemic so thinking climate change extreme heat illness related to that fatalities injuries from extreme weather not to get all doom and gloom but like that's kind of where you start to see the health and well-being thing come in air pollution from wildfire thinking about how our assets can help to reduce the impacts on people from these climate change threats that we're seeing out there some big
3: issues for sure but ones we've got to tackle matt i'll ask you next obviously the work you're doing here this could be legacy work you know i don't know what else your resume looks like outside of what we're focused on here but you know this is a real opportunity i think to make a change in the world what's the next couple of steps next couple of levels you can see this going to It is really exciting where we're at right now. And I
0: genuinely do feel a path ahead where I think I'm going to hopefully, in collaboration with everybody listening to this podcast, I think we are going to get to that point where health, well-being, equity issues related to people are as commonly discussed in real estate as environmental issues have come to be. And that's really exciting to me. We absolutely have to do this. It's not just that we should, it's we have to for the issues that face our world today but I also do feel it's good business. As I mentioned before, I genuinely do feel that the leading companies will have a really strong story to tell at an organizational scale in terms of the policies they have, in terms of really having clear leadership on these issues. And then even at the asset level, I genuinely believe that there will come a time fairly quickly that tier one tenants are going to be asking for certifications like well to go along with Explicit environmental certifications. So I just think that it's good business. To your point, I mean, one thing I've learned from studying the green building movement is, to your point, about ten years for a major project. The worst thing you can do is miss a trend and create an asset that is obsolete in some form. And I know I do work for IWBI, but I really genuinely do feel that health and well-being as a category is something that's really coming quite strongly.
3: Yeah, Matt, you kind of mentioned a couple of times that you know being the precipice, and I feel that. Tenants like you know First National are looking for a new office just a couple of years ago, and we're getting ready to move into it now. That would be top of mind to have that kind of certification. But it's not table stakes yet for the majority of tenants. It's something that you seek out, but it's not just something that tenants expect to have in the absence of detriment. It's more like it's still in the category of an addition to the building. So that would be a shift in mindset where you have to have it or you're just out of the game. I would add the one caveat to that, the one cautionary tale, is
0: that even when we just did the health and well-being module, examples like First Capital, they do exist, where one thing we realized is that externalities are not just negative. There's positive externalities too, by which I mean, before you have something like a well or a growth health and well-being module out on the market, there are companies, leaders like First Capital doing great stuff on thriving. You just don't know about it. And so one thing that was really abundantly clear is that Companies that really loved the health and well being module from Gresb and didn't want it to just go away, even though the indicators did make it into core assessment, were the ones who suddenly had a lot going on and they had a chance to tell their story about that. So I think the leading companies in 2016 were already doing stuff on this. And I think, as you heard from Melissa, there are companies like First Capital accelerating out with these issues. So it takes a while to develop the skill you need, the talent within your company to do this. Yes, it's emerging. But I think it's accelerating.
3: I think that's probably a good place to end. A nice compliment for First Capital and Melissa. It's a high note <laughs> to go you, out on. <laughs> I'm sure we can have you back on this podcast every couple of months and there'll be something new to talk about. You know, this is rapidly shifting ground to the positive. But we are done today. So I want to thank both of you for sharing your insight. It was super insightful. It's getting clearer for me as just kind of you know a generalist of real estate. It is getting clearer and clearer. These podcasts helped a lot. I hope the audience shares that as well. We want to thank First National for powering the podcast, of course. But again, to the guests, thank you. And we hope to have you back soon. Thanks very much.
2: Thank you.
1: All right. Welcome to the series After Show, where we digest the conversation we just had. And I started off the top about how excited I was about the discussion. First doctor, yay, thank you. Check that one off the list. And man, oh man, When you're talking to somebody with that kind of background where, you know, and he even said it, his life objective goal is to just help as many people as possible. And it kind of led him to the built form as almost like low hanging fruit. I can't remember how he described it, but there's just so much growth and benefit to be earned or gained through changing the way that human society interact, use,
3: build real estate. Kind of impactful just to hear it coming out of somebody that's that smart. Definitely uh interesting career path. I'm sure a lot of people entering med school don't envision a real estate-related career at some point further down the road. That's why I asked the question, too, about you know, how many of your peers do you have. But actually sounds like maybe there was more than I thought, that there is more significant medical expertise thinking about where we live and work. So encouraging to hear. Great conversation all around. Something that really stuck out for me, and I believe this is Matt that said it, the importance of getting investors on board. ESG's had a lot of discussion in the last handful of years. We've talked in various episodes about there's an attributable dollar value to investments that rank well in that category. But you only talk for so long, you know, investment dollars is what's going to accelerate it. And you know, Matt did highlight that transitioning from talking about it to action is here. And of course the real estate, you know, money's always evolved. And so that's what you want to see is, you know, significant investment dollars backing that up.
1: We covered so much. It's tough for us to just do a quick after show on the discussion. One well, then this stood out to me that I don't think we actually said it. GRESB, and I've heard it pronounced GRESB or Grasby, I don't know if either is wrong or right. It used to stand for Global Real Estate Sustainability Benchmark, but I think they kind of got away from that because they didn't necessarily want it to be just sustainability as the focus. So it's now just called GRESB, and it's really an ESG performance measurement, right? So it's supposed to encompass everything. And then I think early on we heard Matt talk about how he was actually the, this is his language, the intellectual author of the health and well-being module of Gresb. So GRESB is a ESG performance metric for investors, operators, and people looking to just participate in the commercial real estate space. And he contributed to the health and well-being component. And then, of course, once you take that, that was the start. And then IWBI is just a whole, I think, more deep, larger component or threshold for measuring the health and well-being of commercial real estate. I wasn't sure we made that clear. And to the point, I think it's important to everybody. It really is. And it's not just a thing you do that's good for your conscience to sleep at night. You end up increasing your returns, which is just like, that's so critical to this. And I think that's why we're seeing it just almost explode industry-wide.
3: I had a discussion with the borrower not that long ago. They got a building that would rank very well in ESG context. They said they expect to get a 25 basis point premium on cap rate for the building just for that aspect. And, you know, on a large project, that's not an insignificant amount of money.
1: Not just on a valuation perspective, people paying up, right, for the inherent value in the long run, right? Because I think right now it's kind of like, yeah, like people really want a well-certified building or they want to know that you have a GRES certification if they're going to invest money or LEED or BOMA or any of the other different certifications. I think it's too early to tell exactly what that means as far as rent increase or rent premium you can get. From tenants. I think everybody acknowledges it's there. I think some tenants have already said it's required and they will pay up. Some have it written directly in their own policies, others do not, right? And that's like, I think right now we're kind of in this gray area where we're not really sure. But I think in the future, it's going to become almost a mandatory thing. And I think employees will start doing it too. Oh, like, what's your ESG strategy? What kind of office building do you work in? Does it have these certifications? If no, then no, I'm going to take my talents to South Beach, take my talents to somewhere else that does offer these things or is taking these things more seriously. I just think that's where it's going. Like, you can just kind of feel it. We're just at the very beginning. But I think that's why clients like yours are saying people will pay up now knowing in the long run, it's going to result in a way higher returns.
3: Well, you mentioned in the interview that First National, our new building is a well-certified building. And I know that you were part of the building selection process. Would we have considered buildings that were not the forefront of the certification or at least having the systems we want to see in there?
1: Well, I mean, remember that process went through four, five, six years ago. I can't even remember now when the whole process started. Before, I don't even know if IWBI existed at the time. I think we were focused on ensuring ownership and operations were a major institution. So Cadillac Fairview clearly qualifying as one of those. I think at the time, that was kind of our focus is, We wanted to make sure that whoever was the developer, owner, operator was a major institution, knowing full well that then you get top quality, best in class, everything else. It just so happens, I think, that as Cadillac Fairview was going through the development process, and clearly they've got an embedded ESG strategy that it started to become apparent to them that they needed to get these well certifications. And so our build just happened to be one of them. So almost a bonus, I think, to us that my understanding is we ended up kind of getting into this building before that process was finalized. Perhaps it was kind of dangled to us, but again, I think it was a little bit before this became
3: a real major thing. Well, I guess I'll pull as a theoretical then. Say we were to uh, move again immediately. Would that be a must-have criteria for the company if we were to go seek out new office? Yeah,
1: I clearly can't speak for Stephen Smith, Maury Taz, our founders, or Jason Ellis, our president and COO today. But do I think that our employees and our colleagues care about it? Yeah, absolutely. Like who doesn't, right? Like who would say, Nah, I don't really care if the air quality is crap where I spend 80% of my awake hours. Nah, it doesn't matter to me. Nobody would say that, right? I think it's just becoming modus operandi. It's becoming just this
3: status quo for a lot of employers. Which is a good thing. And I guess that was kind of the point of the conversation is there's been this rapid, rapid rise. But yeah, now yeah, you really see the money flowing to where you got these certifications in place. So interesting times.
1: Very, yeah. This is actually one of the few times in real estate where things seem to be moving quick like there's stuff happening rapidly I mean rapidly like it's taken four years for this to come through but rapid in the sense that it, yeah <laughs> where evolution takes 30 years in our industry four years is a real quick time frame so thanks to everybody for listening really appreciate your support and until next time
3: talk See yeah, everybody
0: thank you for listening to the CRE podcast the information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing professional accounting or legal advice first national financial LP Holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.